Welcome. My name is Michael McDonnell. I am the cybersecurity librarian. And thank you for joining Moro and myself. Hey, Moro, how are you doing tonight? Pretty good. Uh, Michael, I don't think we're live. Oh, oh we're live. We oh, now we're live. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm doing well. There you go. See, that's that's what we get. We'll, we'll add it to the blooper reel. <laughs> <laughs> so we've, we've got... Um, uh, I think the live stream that we've planned ahead the most for, and um, I'm pretty excited for two reasons. Uh, number one, because this is about, uh, it's for students and new professionals. And I have um, a real big commitment um, to trying to build a better profession and get um, all the interesting people we can into this profession. And number two, because we're not hosting tonight. Yay. We get to actually see someone else do our jobs for a change, which I'm totally psyched for. This, so. this is this is going to be <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Um, to everyone in the audience, uh, this is going to be um, interesting in, in so many ways. Um, we actually anticipate a larger audience. Because, uh, well, um, our student leaders um, uh, can draw a bigger audience than we can. And because our panelists have promoted this to other student groups um, across Alberta. So we're going to have a much bigger audience. And you know what? I'm just, you know, I'm going to break the fourth wall here for a second. Because it's telling us we have zero audience members. But I know there's people in the chat. And I'm getting a sense that YouTube live is doing its weird thing that mm. I've read about. I've only read about this from other YouTube streamers that occasionally <laughs> it doesn't work. Oh, okay. Uh, hmm. Give me but, one moment. I'm going to go, I'm going to go check. Uh, well, I already had it going in another window and it, it was streaming. So, Hey, if you're in the audience, say hi and remind us that this little <laughs> thing that I'm looking at right up here, right up, here is telling me that it says zero audience and uh, we'll wait as long as it takes to know that there's an audience. Um, I'm going to type a message. I, I blame Twitch. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, so here's what, here's the concept for tonight. Uh, we met um, Alex and Emily, who are student leaders on the executive of the University of Calgary's uh, Information Security Club, and uh, was blown away by their leadership and their engagement. And Morrow and I said, you know what? Um, we should uh, have a live stream that isn't us hosting um, or and not us talking about new professionals, but just give the platform over. And um, they agreed to it, and um, that's what's going to happen. And so what I'm going to do, you notice we haven't played the intro? Well, I've made a special little add-on to the intro music just for them. We're going to play that, and then we're going to bring Alex and Emily on. We're going to interview them for about five minutes, and then we're going to turn the show over, and they're going to interview our panelists tonight. So here we go. Get ready.
Emily, Alex, hello. Hi, Welcome how's it going? <laughs> I love the caca. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not something we have normally in our club. <laughs> I, I tried to make it now? as cheesy like those movies where there's endless like intro sequences for every producer involved. I tried to do that. The cawing seemed egregious and appropriate. So. <laughs> Yeah, you'll be happy to know you can actually purchase that on Fiverr. Michael will actually do a custom video of that for you on Fiverr. <laughs> um, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna let Moro does all our our good questioning, so I'm gonna let you uh, introduce and and uh, interview Alex and Emily. Um, sure. Let's let's find out why we're here and 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 who these folks are. Okay. Well, when we start off with introductions, so you know, I'm gonna ask Emily. Uh, you know, to introduce herself, and then we'll ask uh, Alex to introduce herself. So, sure. Emily. Okay, yeah. Uh, I'm Emily Baird. Uh, I'm a computer science student at the University of Calgary. I just finished up my second year. Um, and I also have a background in linguistics. I have a, a BA in linguistics from the U of C as well. And um, yeah, I've got a bunch of varied interests in, in computer science. I'm into uh, web development. I'm into front-end design, but I've also found a uh, love for security, and it's something that I'm trying to pursue as a career now as I move through school. Um, and that was what led me to uh, the the Information Security Club with Alex. Cool, cool. Nice to meet you, Emily, in person. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Alex. Uh, yeah, I'm Alex. Um, I go to the UFC as well. I'm in a dual degree of political science and computer science. I just finished up my third year of political science and my second year of computer science. I always wanted to be in um, cybersecurity and political science led me to the policy route and I ended up getting into computer science so I could actually understand the technical side. Um, and I'm the vice president of the University of Calgary Information Security Club, which I also founded. Oh, sweet. Right on. I did not know you were the founder, so <laughs> I'm now even more impressed. <laughs> so, um, all right. Well, the, well, why don't we delve in here? So, like you kind of mentioned, you were interested in the policy side. Is that something you're looking for in a career in cybersecurity? Is that like your main focus or is there something else that kind of drives you? So I'm totally into policy. I love writing policy. I love doing policy papers at school. And I really like learning about the different cyber policies like the GDRP and PIPEDA and everything. Um, but I wouldn't be opposed to doing the technical side. Right now I'm on internship with Cisco and I, I ended up really liking like programming and all the technical side of cybersecurity. So I'm kind of open to either. They're both super interesting to me. <laughs> I think we, uh, we chatted uh maybe a few weeks ago, you were saying that, you know, you guys were doing some uh, blue team, red team simulation, that sort of thing. So uh, that, that sounds really cool. Uh, I guess, you know, uh, if you want to plug uh, the, the info security club, usually I leave that towards the end, but I figure you know, <laughs> now's a good time to, you know, kind of plug that. If you want to, you know, kind of blast out a shout out to people that might be interested in joining you or trying to reach you, if you have a website or anything of that nature or any upcoming events, would you like to kind of uh, expand on that? Uh, yeah, uh, Michael just put on our um, club website, which I believe has a link to our Discord. We're most active in Discord, as most um, comp kids are. 
Um, <laughs> there's a joke that Comsec kids will make a Discord for everything, and it's true. Um, <laughs> and we're gonna go forward with. We meet on Mondays during the school year at 6 p.m. Um, we were in N60. That might be different now. Um, we'll see. But we have lots of fun stuff we've been planning since the beginning of the summer. We have a ton of fun stuff coming up. And we welcome kids from all universities. We had kids from Mount Royal. Um, we would welcome kids from state. And yeah, just all yeah, like-minded people. Awesome. We have people who are university students. We've had the occasional high schooler. Um, we have people from a, a surprisingly broad range, uh, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, we're, we're planning on doing a lot of workshops. We do a lot of stuff with, um, with capture the flag competitions. Uh, we are working on a speaker series uh, and we basically just have a packed schedule in the upcoming school year. Right on, right on. Sounds amazing. So I guess kind of backing up a little bit, Emily, uh, I guess kind of curious to see what your interests are in cybersecurity and what you're kind of I guess, gravitating towards inside of uh, the cybersecurity realm or even as a career? Uh, I, I hesitate to, to <laughs> say anything yet, uh, just because I feel like at this point, I'm, there are too many interesting pieces of cybersecurity for me to say like, oh, I just want to do this or I just want to do that. Um, I kind of agree with Alex that I, I really like programming. Um, okay. I really like development. Um, but then also, like Alex, I also have a humanities background, and um, I think that Mike and I have talked about some stuff with like threat intel and uh, and stuff that's on the less um, less tech, not less tech, but like um, more about research and more about uh, about about intelligence and and things like that as well. So. I don't want to. I don't want to claim <laughs> too no, no, strongly no. for anything, but I, no, I want it, to. It, it's cool because uh, you know you are right. Uh, cybersecurity. I mean, even IT in general. You know, there's there's multi disciplines. Uh, I find some of the greatest people are the those that kind of have you know, uh, I guess a little bit of expertise in a little bit of everything. So you know, I don't want. I you know, I really hate the label generalist. But, you know, there is power in, in, in that, I guess, association of being able to kind of tackle and know a little bit of everything rather than being the expert at just one thing. So uh, I know from my experience, I'm very much of that same mindset as well. I usually shift careers and, you know, shift skill sets on a quite regular basis. Usually, you know, in two years, I might be, you know, doing whatever policy or whatever writing. And then, you know, all of a sudden I'll be like, yeah, I'm actually designing networks now. So it's <laughs> like that. That's kind of been my career. So uh, I, I totally understand and get it. So but um, anyways, I guess, you know, I, a loaded question for both of you and hopefully, uh, you know, I guess the audience. What are you hoping to kind of get out of this type of live stream that, you know, we hope that we can kind of uh, give back to students, even new grads or even people that are kind of delving into that cybersecurity career uh career realm uh i'm just kind of curious like what what are you guys hoping to to kind of get out of this i think maybe this speaks to what i just said but i would really like to get a better understanding of the breadth of the industry okay. um a lot of what we hear about in um especially i think in university is um pen testing super 
mathy, like cryptography, like, um, and there's so much more. And I'd really like to get a, a view of a lot of like the different pieces of it and how they all fit together. Okay, cool, cool. I'm going to yeah. throw this up that is a resource from our last live stream. It's this really interesting map of certifications and do not confuse certifications with um, job work roles in uh, cybersecurity. There's actually a standard now that maps out work roles in cybersecurity, but this, this particular resource um, I think is really helpful for people when they're starting out to sort of see um, these six columns that sort of show you the areas you can go into implementation, which is technical architecture and design management analysts, which is as threat Intel and risk managers, defensive operations or uh, offensive, which is pen testing and um, cyber war. Um, so it's a pretty good resource that um, is new and is really helpful. I think when you're starting out and trying to make sense of um, where everything fits, um, by the way, the UFC has, you, you mentioned cryptography. The UFC has an, a heavy emphasis on that because you have a great number of professors who are extremely talented and that a great research program. But it causes any, any university always has an overemphasis on wherever their research strength is. And so it's really, you are correct. <laughs> In cybersecurity, we have to know encryption, but we don't do it very often. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. But um, anyways, I guess, you know what, now is probably a good time to get started. But before I start, I'm going to ask people to hit that like button if you like this video, help others find it. Subscribe to this channel if you haven't already and you feel that, you know, you're getting some value out of our channel. And I think there's a bell button you can hit and get notifications for any new videos that come out. So I guess with that, I'm going to hand it back to Michael to, I guess, get us a little bit started here. And uh, yeah. Or we're gonna we'll be on the on the sidelines there, you know, kind of helping Alex and Emily. But for the most part, this is their show for tonight. <laughs> All right. So uh, with that, uh, here's the only transition we need. We have four panelists, and um, these are people that uh, um, Alex and Emily surveyed another number of students. They talked to people in their club. They got feedback, and they came up with a list of questions, a list of topics a list of professional um, activities they were interested in. And then we went away and wrangled up folks who kind of overlapped that. And we tried not to get like we did in previous live streams, like 10 people. So there will be four panelists, myself, um, Lisa Yo, who wrote a book on firewalls, is a network, a hardcore network person. That's when I met her. Now she is a professor teaching InfoSec. And uh, we have uh, Jared Richardson. Um, Jared is a director at a company. He's the nicest guy I ever met in cybersecurity. Um, he is our sort of manager amongst many other things. And we have Julia, former web developer and today a pen tester. Each and every one of these people um, I invited here because they have extraordinarily uh, or they have demonstrated extraordinary leadership qualities on top of all of that. So they were really the people I want to hear these answers to. So with that, uh, Alex and Emily, oh, sorry, you want... I'm, 
I'm going to interrupt. Uh, I'm going to tell the audience one last thing before I shut up, and that is that please write write your questions down. Uh, we are going to hold them off towards the end, so please don't feel hurt that we're not addressing it. We will address it. We just want to uh, ensure that we, we got a timely schedule going because uh, there are a lot of questions. But please, by all means, if you have any questions of any of our panelists, please write down their name and just kind of ask the question, and we will address it towards the end of the yeah. uh, live stream. You can put your comments, your questions, have a live discussion in the chat. We'll be monitoring that and saving it up. And then we're going to kind of put those, well, we hit the like one hour mark or something like that. Um, yeah. 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 Something like that. Okay. So, okay. Alex, Emily, it's your show. Uh, all right. I think how we're going to start this is we wanted each of you to introduce yourself and just kind of say where you work in the tech industry. Um, just briefly. So I guess we'll start with Lisa. Um, what's your background in cybersecurity? Okay, so my background, I worked as a sysadmin and basically, you know, keep computers running, keep connected, uh, run all the back end side. And the cybersecurity came in because when I started this, I, you know, was the PC support person and there were viruses and there were word macros and to some extent, we had a sneaker net where we ran disks around to different places. And that's some of my very first, you know, cybersecurity. I didn't think of it as that at the time, but that was what I was doing. And then it morphed into I was the person in charge of the, the systems that were attached to the Internet. And so I had to learn what I was doing um, to keep it up. And I, I just really quite liked it. And so that's where my initial stages were through that. So at one point in time, I, I worked for the... Um, the the Alberta legislature and that's I think where I ended up meeting Michael was through that connection and, and some of the work that I did there um, and I really sort of in that time transitioned from being the network person being the person running the firewall and making the decisions about what is security you know you can't do that it's too risky it's whatever and I think anyone who's sort of learning the Lisa dropped off. Oh, uh, that's okay. She was having some technical issues prior to, so uh, we understand. Once she comes back, we'll, we'll we'll give some focus back to her. So if you want, uh, maybe move on to uh, the next person you you had a question for. Oh, I think Lisa's coming back. Okay, well, we'll, 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 we'll move on and then we'll come back. And she's back. So, oh, there she's back. Uh, <laughs> I'm back. Back oh. and running in my... Okay, I'm Lisa. having huge difficulties with my network connection today for some reason. Okay, there, there we go. I think we got um, the voice back, so it's it's all good. How about you move on to the next person and we can come back? Okay, sounds good. So. Okay, I don't know where you lost me. You were talking about where <laughs> you and I met. And now I can't hear you guys. Okay. Okay, so we got lost me at the Alberta legislature when I was working for them. And when I morphed into caring less about being the person making decisions because I understood what was scary and more about letting business people make policy decisions, make risk management decisions. And so I sort of morphed into that business side of things. And now that eventually led me to a PhD and academia where I actually do research in this area as opposed to doing the work on a day-to-day -day basis. So it makes me a little different from some of your other guests today. <laughs> Uh, that's super cool. Uh, Jared, why don't you introduce yourself? 
Hi, uh, my name is Jared. Um, I am, as Michael alluded to, a director of IT security compliance for an IT consulting company in Edmonton. Um, and uh, I guess where my background comes, I'm a little bit different than others here on the panel. I don't come from academia. I come from a, a background of living with a developer morphed into technical certifications like from the industry and then on the job, hands-on, you know, training into system in roles from desktop support to system in. And then um, like Lisa, actually, as the things like firewalls have evolved over the years and as infrastructure has changed, skill set also had to change. So evolving that skill set and then fast forward 20 years and now I'm in this role, um, more dedicated into the cybersecurity presence for the company I work for. And we'll end off with Julia. Why don't you tell us about yourself? All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Julia. And I was not a hacker when I started doing this. Um, so my journey into security started way back when, when I wanted to be a police officer when I was younger. That was my big dream. I loved the idea of fighting bad guys, you know, as a kid, right, as you do. So after that, I went into university. I studied psychology because, you know, cops don't make as much money as psychologists. <laughs> there we go. So I studied psychology. Um, and I decided just to, you know, make some websites on the side because it's a lot of fun. I was into, like, web games and all of that. Um, and I got hired as a web developer. And I was like, oh, this is really neat. I can make money doing something that I love doing. So why continue with psychology? So I switched into a double major of psychology and comp sci. Um, but then as a web developer, I continued into uh, user experience design, which uses a lot of those psychology backgrounds and really helps understand the things that I'm building or was building from a more holistic perspective. Um, and that led me into, you know, getting to know other developers and one of whom switched over into security in the company that I currently work for, which is Online Business Systems. It's a consulting agency out of Winnipeg. And actually, we're all over the place. Um, a lot of our clients are the states, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's big. Um, and I was like, oh, hey, this practice seems really, really neat. You get to work from home. You meet really neat and interesting people. You get to travel for work. What is this? So I was like, all right, career switch. So I went into becoming a web app pen tester. And that is how I am here. Um, so my question for you guys um, is kind of like from your background that like wasn't directly in cybersecurity, uh, what skills did you acquire that you found actually really helped you in cybersecurity that you wouldn't have learned just trying to go through school or something? That's Anyone actually, okay, yeah, that's actually really interesting. <laughs> so for my end, um, you know, at the beginning of my career, that day-to-day -day experience with, with people was actually a big driver because, you know, at the end of the day, cybersecurity is really all about the, the person um you know and, and they're also your biggest vulnerability so like learning the things that users do and don't do or should do but don't 
that's what a lot, you know, a lot of that experience was really helpful to me. I guess um, leading on from that, kind of something that a couple of people have already mentioned a little bit um, is how quickly things change and how quickly things seem to change in cybersecurity and in tech in general. Um, so of the skills that you started off developing earlier in your careers, um, how have you maintained and grown those skills as you progress throughout your career? And how do you like not only stay sharp, but like stay ahead of the curve and find new things? For me, anyway. uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep going there. Uh, for me, it's just realizing that I'm, I may not be in front of the curve to start and uh and not and the big thing right now is trying not to get overwhelmed by the by the massive amount of information that's that's coming at us from between different media sources um and, and i mean definitely there is a point where you do need to pick sort of like where your specialties lie and where you're comfortable um and then let that kind of guide you know like where you where you want to go really What about you, Julia? What, how do you- So I would like to say there is, you can go, Lisa. <laughs> what works for me or one of the things that I have from the early days that I think has been really helpful no matter what to transition is just the ability to do sort of that problem solving and understand, um, I think of it as like the puzzles. So understand what the puzzle is and, and to be really good at solving whatever problems in front of me and then going to find the information that I need or, or partner with somebody who knows it. Okay. Um, what about you, Julia? How do you think your background in psychology um, helped you um, get into cybersecurity and do well in it? It was huge. I think it was absolutely huge being able to understand why people do the things that they do and what motivates an individual really helped me to be able to see um, attack vectors, for example, in a very different way than somebody who's just focused on the technical aspect. Like for me, it's not just about the how, it's the why. And the why is very important in this industry, I find. Like, and that's how the industry also is changing. People's motivations change. Their motivations for what is valuable, what isn't valuable anymore. So you can't keep trying to keep the bad guys out in a certain way. You have to start like really expanding your own worldview around that. I sense that you might become a threat intel analyst someday. Oh, one day, I'm sure. <laughs> So I'm going to I'm going to point out a really interesting um set of parallels here. So um Alex when you introduced yourself you talked about the fact that you have a poli sci degree. Well Moro also uh has a poli sci degree. And uh well, actually no, actually I ditched it because I knew that it would it wouldn't amount to anything for me. So uh I was actually looking at a career uh going towards law. And then I was fortunate enough to uh, have a prof in my third year who explained exactly what law is. And I decided that, yeah, it's not. Essentially, it was pretty much either, you know, you finish off your poli sci degree and go for another degree and then go into law 
or you go down the academia track and neither was very attractive. I was even fortunate enough to have a prof that was an actual um, uh, a public servant, right? So he actually worked in government and knew a lot of top officials uh, at, at the time. So this would have been like Kretchen's, um, during Kretchen's era. And quite frankly, uh, actually, uh, I had one prof who, who invited Stefan Dion at the time to come visit and take a talk. But uh, he mentioned, goes, Moro, it's a incredibly greasy pole to try and get to the top. So that just kind of, I thumbed my nose at it and uh, went into comp sci and uh, found my uh, true calling there. And really, uh, that's that's how it started. Uh, back in the day, cybersecurity was something that was almost non-existent. Um, even at the university I was, so I went to the University of Lethbridge. At that time, that firewall was maybe three years old. So we're talking about, you know, a, a completely bygone era where security was, oh, it was, it, yeah, it was not at the top of the, top of the, I guess, food chain, so to speak. So. The, another interesting parallel is um, uh, Julie and I both have degrees in psychology. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I think, so if you take a look um, at certifying bodies, um, they always emphasize a computing science degree. Um, but what you'll find in reality is people who work in cybersecurity come from an enormous diversity of backgrounds, um, including an enormous diversity of academic backgrounds. In fact, I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of people that I work with in cybersecurity don't come from a university background. Um, they actually come from technical schools. Um, and we have um, quite a few people watching from both Nate and Sate. Um, it's the background you come from is not nearly as important as the skills you develop and the capabilities you develop along the way. Um, there's people I work in work with who come from a technical background, but they do completely non-technical work. Um, Jared, what's what's your you, you were saying earlier, like you don't have an academic background. Did you go to, did you go to Nate? No, I didn't actually. So the programs that actually I, I do advise for at Nate now were in a completely different of, you know, state of evolution back in the late nineties. Uh, I'll date myself there. And uh, they, and they, their focus was completely different than they were today. If, if I had the type of program, today like going into it that that's actually available out there pick pick your school right now like i mean nate would be the closest one to me i would be there tomorrow you know um and even some of the you know the 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 the, the programs the continuing education programs and and new programs that are coming out through schools like nate i mean are you know are very attractive now to, for even you know to go back to school and, and you know keep upgrading and keep learning because they do allow you with industry experience to get back involved with the programs so I, I think there's a lot of opportunity there and you're absolutely correct i mean there's a place for everybody from all types of backgrounds and uh i i i fully believe that the cyber cybersecurity in general is a community event it's not it's not a one person knows everything so the the only way we're all going to be successful in industry at the end of the day is if we have this diverse background coming from different schools, different trains of thought, and different you know technical and you know fundamental experience, right? So on that note of like 
having a, a lot of diversity being serving people really well in cybersecurity. Um, a big question from students and young professionals that are interested in cybersecurity, it's kind of this elusive field that no one really knows much about. Um, and people are really interested in what a day in the life would be like. So uh, what would a day in the life be from you guys? Because I tried to get as diverse of a panel as possible. Oh, goodness. I'll go first on this one. So you want to be a pen tester. Do you like writing reports? No? That's too bad. Get out. <laughs> That's pretty much it, honestly. If you want to be a pen tester, you have to know and be comfortable with writing reports because most of your time is going to be spent not, you know, doing these fun little hacks and getting into these networks and like, ooh, passwords, SQL injection. No. Um, most of the time is gathering the evidence that you find and then reporting on it. So if you like reports that look nice, if you like graphs, if you like explanations and justifying, you know, why it is that the business has to fix this. Like if you like those sort of debates and technological arguments, then yes, 100%, that's your day. That is your day. Like for myself, um, I will do pen test over the course of a week and then I will report on it. Reporting takes me like maybe a day and a half, maybe two days, depending on how big of an app it was. Um, it's a lonely field. Most of the time you end up working alone because, well, having two people on one pen test is kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but you get by. Uh, a lot of the work is remote. A lot of companies hire remote, which is fantastic. You saw my German shepherd making an appearance. So you get to spend time with your loved ones and furry, furry rascals. And that's about it. So it's, it's great. It's boring for some people. Um, but I find it quite fulfilling. I, I like finding those holes. Yeah. I think that there's probably someone who would find every job interesting. So if, <laughs> yes. if, it's, if it's the job for you, then you won't find it boring. Uh, Jared, how about you? Um, for me, sort of the day in the life, I guess, like at least on the security side, um, really comes down to um, sort of the, like, the list of engagements that we're doing on the consulting side with clients. So as far as the priorities, as far as like... Um, you know, ensuring that certain things are compliant in other environments. Um, and then at the same time, seeing what type of issues are actually coming through as an active, you know, ticket coming through some system or from some person, um, you know, pick your threat. Um, like Julia, there's a lot of reporting. Uh, and, and that's the thing is transparency with with documentation and, and information is going to be critical because while I don't do pen testing as a as a primary function of my job i would go to julia and and you know and we would have to speak the same language at that point understand the same sets of data and all the rest of that so on my end it's 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 on me to learn more about you know what she's going to be presenting to me and and understanding that explanation but the day in the life is definitely more a little bit more chaotic from my end um just because when you do see attacks and different things happening and um being in the consulting role and not dedicated to one specific company or client, it does spread out. It, it's very diverse for me. <laughs> it's never a dull, dull, more, uh, dull moment at that point. 
Uh, Lisa, what about you? Uh, what would a day in the life be for a very different type of cybersecurity professional? So Lisa oh, is uh, oh. is still having technical difficulties. Um, okay. Michael, then I was also going to yeah. you definitely diversify our portfolio. What's a day in the life like for you? Um, I'm going to answer that question twice. Um, <laughs> okay. Just sort of um, the, the job I do now and, and some other jobs I've had. Um, so I work on a, a project to help a team improve their security operations center processes right now. And so um, much like Julia, my day involves a lot of writing. Um, unlike most of the jobs I have, right now I don't get a lot of interruptions and I don't have a lot of operational work. And so I design processes, I create diagrams, and I do a lot of reading and research. Um, I take, I find lots of best practices that are emerging. I look for all the smart people and I synthesize all that information and then put together proposals. Um, my day also involves um, a fair bit of advisory work where uh, someone will come up and say, oh, there's um, a problem explaining risk to a particular team. Can um, you help out? Um, or um, it, my technical background is not at all removed from this process development knowledge work where literally once I come up with processes, they'll say, we'll do a proof of concept and build those as rules in a technical system. And then I have to go and learn a new XML based detection language or write queries in JSON or um, the Sigma language. And there's a million of these technical things. And then I have to understand a lot of technical platforms. If I want to build a process for the detection of threats that people will execute, I have to understand the technology as well. So right now my day-to-day -day is sort of like a culmination of every sysadmin job, every developer job, every writing and management job, all put together so that I can look at a team and say, how can this team be more efficient? Um, how can they be great at what they're good at today? Um, how do I put the people, the processes, and the technology together? And so after 25 years of my career, that's my day-to-day. -day, and it's pretty cool. The day-to-day -day, um, hasn't always been like that. So a year ago, my day-to-day -day would have been uh, get up as early as I possibly can, chug a lot of coffee, and jump on to my first call of the day, um, which was probably some members of my team finding out where they're at with projects for clients, which usually be implementing technology, firewalls, deploying software, um, and then get in some calls with clients um, who might have questions. Maybe they want to buy something. Maybe they need a service. Maybe they're signing a contract. Then go um, meet with my boss, um, talk about some forward-looking things, and then do some technical work. Um, phone up my direct clients and advise them go through a bunch of logs, looking for threats, um, and then um, mentor and train my team. Um, most of the cybersecurity jobs I've had have been very much in the moment, um, constantly switching tasks uh, and constantly being interrupted. There is very much a sense in operational cybersecurity jobs of urgency. And it, when I was a developer, you could go weeks without um, uh, 
someone switching you off your track. And if after two weeks they said, oh, you have to refactor your code, be like, oh, I've only had two weeks to work on it. And now it's sort of like, oh, I got two hours, <laughs> two whole uninterrupted hours. What a miracle. The, the, the level of stress is, is actually quite high. On the other hand, you get to work on um, problems that generally in all my other jobs, um, I think there's some, there's some, the sense of urgency we feel isn't just false it actually does relate to the intensity of the threats in the world. And so there's a certain kind of drive and motivation there. I think Julia was saying, you know, early in her career, she wanted to, you know, uh, be a police officer and catch bad guys. And there's kind of that sense here too. Um, and Lisa just joined just in time. Welcome back. I didn't hear the question. I didn't hear the question though. I, you know, I've pulled out a new computer. I pulled out new headphones. Hopefully this will work. You sound think, great. What is a day in the life like for you as an academic in cybersecurity? As an academic in cybersecurity, um, you know, I think it's very similar to, to, to academics, which means that I don't do a whole lot of actual hands-on um, stuff. In, during the school semester, I might be teaching students. I'm certainly trying to pay attention um, to the news about what's going on, at least in the areas that I'm of interest Um and I can, you know, that leads to rabbit holes, but that's actually one of the nicest things about what I do is I get to read a lot and I can read some of the academic work, but I also make sure that I read a lot about what's happening in the real world and what the real problems are and how people are tackling them. Because um, if we want to try and figure out um, either a policy decision or we want to like see what the real pain points are in the real world before I start wandering around, it's not like I just think up problems in my head and try and convince people they matter. I want to start from that. So uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of reading. There's a lot of writing. There's a lot of avoiding writing. Um, I think it probably feels a little bit like being a student, but without any clear idea of what the target is. <laughs> yeah. Um, Lisa, maybe you could speak a little bit more on what your areas of research interest are. So I have a few. Um, I do a little bit of what would be considered sort of economic modeling. So it's kind of the business rational decision making around how do we, what should we spend on security? What does that mean? What, um, and, and it always, like even my thesis work and some of that work, it, it, I feel like a sellout when I do it, because basically what I find is that from a purely rational model, the fact that companies don't invest in security and that we don't make more secure products, it's all completely economically rational. And I'm like, oh, great. That just makes me so sad. <laughs> but that's why it's a policy thing, right? Like no company is going to do this on their own. So because to them it doesn't make sense because they have essentially the costs are borne out by someone else. Um, we're the ones who lose their data privacy. We're the ones who have to um, worry about maybe stalkers or whatever. So in that sense, um, that's how I ended up really in policy, right? Businesses aren't going to do this on their own. It's not necessarily in their own economic interest to do it. So we need policy because it's not in society's interest to let companies just do whatever they want. Um, when it comes to this. And so that's a large part of that. I've started to morph into things around online harassment and um, hate speech and trying to find ways to reduce that. Um, so I think I'm kind of morphing into a place where I'm interested in sort of equal access to technology because what happens with harassment and stuff is it knocks out vulnerable populations from being able to participate in communities and discussions. And, and so there's a, a bit of a transitioning into that space. 
as well. Plus a few other things. I do a little, I'm like all over the place. I like shiny objects. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's really interesting. It's really interesting as well to see the, the crossover between all of these almost interdisciplinary aspects of, of technology and policy, um, as well as just the way that we live our lives online. Um, I guess at this point we're, we've heard a lot about what you guys do and, um, and what your roles are. Um, so our next couple questions are about uh, students and new grads and people who are looking to break into cybersecurity, uh, whether or not they're students really, um, and how they can make that leap into the industry um, and how they can break in. So uh, my next question to you guys is, what skills do you think are the most critical for people who are looking to enter the industry? You need to that, name uh, a guest. I, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just call someone out. <laughs> Julia unmuted. So. Julia, I saw you unmute, so now you're up. <laughs> All right, problem solving. Problem solving is a really big skill. Um, if I was looking to hire a new team member, I would be looking for someone who is sharp and who is observant, someone who has problem solving skills. Like we would just be bantering back and forth, but I would be watching to make sure that, you know, I would ask them a super hard question. How did they answer it? If they answer, oh, I don't know, and that's it, then I wouldn't hire them. If somebody else comes in, doesn't know the answer, but says, well, I don't know, but I would go and do this and this and this to find it out. And I would time box myself. So problem solving, time management is huge. Um, as far as concrete things you can get, there are amazing certifications out there that, yes, they do cost some money. They're not as expensive as a degree. <laughs> By far, they are cheaper than a degree, but they will give you a lot of bang for your buck. There's certs that are recognized by the industry um, and they're highly respected. For example, for web app pen testing, there's the um, GWAPT, so that's G-W-A-P-T, which is the G-I-A-S uh, Web Application Penetration Tester Certification. Um, that you can learn from SANS. You can even do self-study, challenge the exam if you don't have all the money for SANS because it is expensive. Um, there's the GPEN, which is more networks. And then there's the OSCP. OSCP is the crown jewel. It is incredibly difficult. Uh, it is a wonderfully puzzling exam. It takes you, I believe it's a 24-hour exam. Um, they give you 24 hours to do it, to perform all the tests, and then to spit out a good report, reporting. Um, but you can go and you can do all of that. You can do it in your own time. You can do it while you are working at another job. Um, or sometimes if you're working at a company, see if they're willing to pay for it. There are companies that will do that for you, that will educate you on something that, you know, they may want to keep you on it. Uh, Jared, do you have any any insight into this as well? What do you think is critical for people entering the industry? Yeah, so this is going to, I think my answer here depends on where, like, or what type of organization they're entering. Um, and 
you know, and, and, and my, and, and so that answer is going to change if you were to, let's say, come to work for us in a consulting capacity, um, you know, versus, you know, going to, you know, a larger enterprise or someplace like that. So in, in my case, um, all from, from our side of things, really the, the thing that we'd be looking for, and we do hire a, a, like a lot of new grads. Um, I'd say the bulk of our staff, uh, right now, um, are, are grads from, you know, different programs. Um, and really what it is, is, is coming in, getting a good foundation as to, you know, like everything from, you know, your customer service skills, like your, your, your soft skills. Um, and then a lot of times that leads to the things you start to learn about the things you like to do and you don't like to do. And, and then seeing where that crossover is and then specifically to cyber cybersecurity, because it's now, um, with, pretty much any vendor out there and we can pick a vendor everybody has this focus within the application stack in some place surrounding cybersecurity whether or not it's about how you interact with the stack or that application or uh, or how it's deployed or you know how it gets reported on or whatever that thing is so you know, uh, from a cybersecurity perspective I mean yes you might start you know let's say with us as a as a tier one uh, technician, that doesn't mean that you can't do cybersecurity as a, tech, a tier one technician. You still have, you know, these are the things, the skills that you learn over time where you learn to see sort of the danger points when you're working with a client. And, you know, and and that's the, the part of the on-the-job training aspect from an experience level that I don't think you get before you really get thrown into the fire, I guess, if that's a good way to put it, um, working with people directly on their problems. And uh, there's a lot of eye-opening things um, when you start working with individual people on, let's say, email issues or something like that, and you start to see, you know, like, you know, all you sort of start down the rabbit hole of, oh, this is how phishing works. And this is, you know, why we need to do training with people for, you know, uh, you know awareness and stuff like that. And, you know, over the time that you, you spend just naturally, you know, uh, doing that, it will open your eyes as to which cert certifications you actually want to do. And the nice thing is, is uh, as Julie was pointing out, there are many different paths you can go down. And I, I mean, I think, uh, and that's kind of the, maybe the thing to highlight is that the path that I've gone down, uh, I've gone down and um, I definitely don't want to go down some of the other paths. I'd much rather have somebody from our team get interested, move into that type of role, you know, as a specialty and let me partner with you. Let's work, work together on that. Once again, it's a community thing. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of my, my view on uh, once you get involved and, and you know, sort of how you start to grow at least. Uh, Lisa. Yeah. Oh, sorry, uh, go ahead, Alex. No, <laughs> just gonna call on Lisa. Um. Okay. I was just gonna say, I wrote this in the chat, but um, writing skills, no matter what you do, having writing skills, and that'll take you in any role. You're going to have to write incident reports. You're going to have to communicate with um, other team members. You're gonna have to communicate up and down sort of the management and technical chain. So knowing how to write and communicate well with people is going to be a, a big deal. Um, even if, you know, nowadays we're sort of, you know, you all are discord people and, and you have a, a different way of communicating with your peers, you're going to have people who expect, you know, different types of written reports and in, in the real, in the real world, as it were, and sort of when you get out into careers. Um, so that was kind of the other thing that I just really wanted to point out. Some of the specific technical stuff that you need really, as, as um, Jared and Julie have said, are going to depend on what you're doing 
um, and what niche you get into. And my career evolved from I knew computers, I knew how to make them work. And from there, I just kind of figured stuff out. So I don't know where the right job is to start for you. Start with a job and you know be happy with that and figure out from there. Uh, Michael, do you have any insights on the most important skills? Oh, I have so many opinions. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I agree with every what everyone said. Um, I'd reinforce writing. Um, it's a couple things that really make a difference in cybersecurity, whether you're um, just starting out in a technical role or whether you've got a more advanced analytical role or whether you're in defense or, off, or offensive cybersecurity, and that's systematic thinking. Um, so when I interview people, I have this rule of thumb. Uh, I want them to be, I want them to uh, listen, think, and speak in that order. And I ask uh, people, people that I'm interviewing, I ask them a lot of questions, and I'm actually evaluating for that. Do they listen um, to what's being said? Um, do they think about it before they speak? And when they speak, uh, do they speak? Do they state their opinion? Can they give a recommendation? One of the things that happens in cybersecurity is we're asked to analyze complex things really quickly. And you've got to be systematic about it or you get ad hoc results. Um, that leads me to another factor I look for. Um, I'm always looking for people that know how to reduce their own bias, that are conscious of their own bias and can overcome it. Um, in my day-to-day -day conversations, I frequently do something I don't think other people do, and that's I state my bias explicitly. Like, whenever I have a conversation about pen testing, I just outright state that I have all sorts of preconceived negative notions about pen testing. Um, <laughs> and by being conscious of that, it allows me to be somewhat more objective and also to recognize when, hey, maybe this is just my gut reacting as opposed to being objective and following the data. Um, and then the third thing that I think has been mentioned that's really important is ethics. Cybersecurity has an ethics problem and it relates to um, the complex history of where our profession came from. It um, relates to the fact that many cybersecurity professionals have a criminal background um, or flirted with criminality or um, admire criminal behavior. Um, it has to do with the fact that we came from practitioner backgrounds, not professional backgrounds. We weren't trained to be lawyers and accountants and engineers where they hammer on you about ethics that are specific to your professional activities. We don't know what our professional activities are. That's new. <laughs> how can we how can we give people concrete ethical examples um so when i interview candidates there is invariably a question that's designed to probe um, the boundaries of ethics um and they're not they're not obviously ethics questions when i pose them but when you fail you fail hard um we need people who are capable of um um acting ethically in in a nuanced environment that nowhere boundaries have to be met. Um, I think it's one of the cores as we transition into being a profession that we're always dealing with secret information. We're dealing with sensitive information. We know things that other people don't um, and we have to separate our roles. And so if you think any job ad is 
all about technical skills. But when I'm interviewing somebody, it's like, well, I know I can train technical skills and I just looking for someone who can learn, but then I'm looking for someone who can communicate, write, think, articulate, and who's ethical. Um, if you're not scared off yet, I mean, you're not <laughs> asking for much, right? Actually, Michael, uh, do you mind if I just jump in on, yeah. on that one? Um, so core to that, I, I completely agree. So ethics and you know morality and ethics within the role, uh, any role you have on tech, um, and this is just goes outside of cybersecurity, actually, for me, because it started very early on, you know, working with teams in other organizations where I was exposed to financial data or legal data, HR data, that type of thing. Um, actually, one of the things I will recommend is, is um, even as a junior, whatever the role is, so is when you actually have the opportunity to, to, to be involved with a mentor of Pick, pick your department, take advantage of that, learn about what is important to them. And then that will also help guide, you know, as far as, you know, understanding, like when you're working with, you know, financial people, there's a certain code of conduct that they have to abide by on the financial side. That's not my specialty, but I've learned that over time, you know, when to ask those questions as to like, hey, are we going past the point where we need to do, do a thing? Um, same thing on the HR side, lean on those people, use them as mentors. It's not just technical mentoring. It's actually like professional development at, at that, once again, the soft skill level that will help you sort of progress. And then uh, once again, going back to the other points about psychology, learning the, the, you know, the behavioral side as to like helping to analyze why somebody would actually want to get at that data or do that thing to that other department. So. We, we have some really interesting comments about ethics in here. So, um, but uh, apparently the InfoSec <laughs> Club um, has used the SANS code of ethics. So, good on you guys. Jeremy Stewart's our president. Uh, <laughs> he's the president. And um, hi, Jeremy. <laughs> we made sure when we started the club. Jeremy also comes from a political science background, so we're pretty forefront on ethics. Um, and he made sure that we drafted some kind of ethics so we weren't just like a weird hacker maybe a legal club where we were teaching kids how to hack and they were just doing whatever with that <laughs> yeah yep um it... so I'd, like, I'd like to add one thing so uh, i agree with what everyone said so far but i'm going to bring this up from our live stream that we did last and something that our friend kyle actually pointed out and i know he made a comment already and we will get to it later on but uh, passion. You can do all what everyone has said so far, but if you are not passionate about this, if you are seeing this as a job or something to make money at, forget it. You'll 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 do a half-assed job, and you'll probably eventually burn out in the industry. Uh, and and that's not just cybersecurity. I mean, it's a big part of cybersecurity, but IT in general. Uh, I'm sorry, it's one of those career paths. You can't just, you know, put a pencil or, you know, keyboard in front of somebody and say, go. Uh, if you, I, I, don't, I don't want to say forget it, but <laughs> Fair I, enough. I, it, you will Fair burn enough. out if yes. you don't find your motivation, if you're just doing it as a job. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, Passion I mean, you know what? I, I'm going to tell you right now, I know so many guys uh, and, you know, maybe it's just they're not motivated. I 
that you know start off in help desk and die in help desk and you know it, it's a slippery slope you get into this industry and you think that someone will just take you under your wing and you you'll you know you'll just grow up the ranks that's not how it works you you've got to literally have some motivation to you know prove whether that's again you know as julie had mentioned going after a certification or you know uh, finding a mentor as jared had mentioned or you know you know brushing up on your writing skills that lisa had mentioned or you know taking those ethics courses like michael had mentioned those are all very integral but at the end of the day you know you've got to put in the time and the work uh to, to move forward with it so that's all i wanted to say <laughs> if i can add to that as well we can tell if you're not passionate <laughs> we really really mm -hmm. can tell yep, that's um, very true. yeah like i've got a i've got a really awesome team got nine people they're all very passionate about it but i've seen the work of people who aren't and it shows it shows in the work it shows in the results it shows in the reports um and you're not going to end up making the big bucks. So if you're here just for the money, mm -mm. it's not going to work. The money's not that awesome. <laughs> oh, speak for yourself, Michael. My money's yeah. pretty good. I got to say, man. <laughs> Come on. on I, I play with like, I play with hardware that usually, you know, we charge customers like half a million dollars on. So I, I love my job. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Uh, well, on that note, you all mentioned skills that are really important. And I think Kyle in the YouTube chat mentioned it. Um, how do you gain those skills? Um, what would be good ways for students even today, over the summer, over the next year to start gaining these skills outside of just their university programs or inside their university programs? Join a debate club. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this with what I, I think. If you don't have a lab, if you don't have like a virtual lab that you've built and you've stripped down and rebuilt multiple times, get one. It's not hard to find, uh, you know, cheap used hardware on, you know, whatever eBay or Kijiji or whatever. Like get yourself an old school HP DL, whatever, 380G7 or whatever it is. Uh, install ESXi on it and go uh, play with the tools, get hands on. Uh, that's that's very integral. Uh, read as much as you can. Uh, I know that uh, Michael and I, we did a live stream on that. Uh, uh, just talking about uh, some of the some of the things happening in cybersecurity uh, in June. And yeah, you know, reading news every day. That, all, all that stuff is very, very important. And I know Michael has uh, even hired people just on the on the fact that after talking to him, it's like, oh, you're really plugged into what's happening in the cybersecurity uh, scene. So I would personally say, you know, get plugged in as soon as you can, build a lab as soon as you can. I think that's really good advice, uh, especially for, for students who are maybe uh, locked down and not planning on returning to school. We've lost some of the resources that we are so used to having access to. So um, I think that's really good advice to like take it into your own hands and start playing with stuff. Um, However, I also want to return to the very brief comment about joining a debate club uh, <laughs> and expand on that. <laughs> yes, um, join a debate club, learn how to talk, learn how to convince people. You're going to be talking with business units. You're going to be talking with people who don't understand our language. They don't know what CSRF tokens are. They don't know what SQL injection is. Like you say SQL injection to us and we're like, <gasps> Physical <laughs> injection to them, they're like, ah, new vaccine? No. 
Um, so you will need to know how to talk with a lot of people and you will need to know how to talk eloquently. That is so important in this career. You don't have to do public speaking. Not everybody's born for that. But you'll have clients. More than likely, you're going to get into an agencies. Agencies are a great way to start your career. They're fantastic because you get so many clients. You get so many engagements. Like, really, go out there, look at agencies, see if they're hiring. See if they're hiring an intern or an associate consultant or something like that. Um, but, yeah, learn how to speak. Learn how to communicate your message on different levels. You can do that for free. Like clubs, uh, reading stuff, writing. Toastmasters. Toastmasters is fantastic, yeah. If, if you're not comfortable speaking, if the whole entire idea is, puts fear in your heart, Toastmasters is for you. Um, I've known so many IT professionals that um, their career hit a barrier because they couldn't present. They joined Toastmasters, found a community of people that were just all in the same boat and um, uh, removed that barrier to their career. I'm going to say that's probably the biggest barrier to management. If you have any aspirations of leading people, that's that's going to be pretty big. And so I'd like to sort of tongues that are because we are in this weird environment where nobody is allowed to go anywhere or do anything. There's an awful lot of like cybersecurity conferences that are now online and really cheap too, sometimes even free for you to join virtually. So it's actually worth trying to um, go to some of those, start to meet people in the community. I am, um, you know, I'm not particularly good at being in those spaces. But there are some really neat stuff. I know um, the Diana Initiative is coming up. It's usually aligned with when DEF CON happens. So there's a lot of stuff that happens in August. Uh, these are places where you can meet like-minded people, um, find mentors to talk to, and and just sort of build the community. There, There's also, I, I wrote this in the chat, um, there's a really active information security and cybersecurity community on Twitter. I don't know how you all feel about that, um, but you can sort of look in through there. And what's also nice is they do a Cyber Mentoring Monday, where if you're looking for a mentor in a particular, you put it up and put the hashtag on it. If you are willing to mentor someone, you can go up and put the hashtag on, and that can help connect people together. So that's just some other ways to, you know, reach out and, and find people in industry or people like you trying to figure out how to break into industry uh, to, to work with and to, you know, boost your skills. And I really think that that helps with some of the networking, which I think ultimately we can be important too. So one of the things that hasn't been said so far, um, Andrew in the audience just said, understanding the business, few companies exist to be IT shops in IT and in cybersecurity, we're there as a service industry. And if you don't understand um, the business, both the industry the business is in, the the all you know the competitive uh, uh, framework they exist in, um, or the specific culture, um, it's very hard to be successful. Um, it's a lot to ask, but you'll notice a lot of people. Um, in cybersecurity, um, choose to get an MBA at some point, uh, Lisa. <laughs> in you know your MBA turned into uh, a security PhD, right? Um, yeah, that's a really important part. Um, I want to add um, a great learning resource. So LinkedIn Learning 
is a giant catalog of video courses. And if you have a commercial LinkedIn account, you get that. But if you're not paying $35 a month, you're like, oh, that's too much. You can get LinkedIn Learning for free if your public library offers lynda.com, which is the old name for it. It's all the same courses. I've taken literally dozens and dozens of those. If you want to get a head up in DevOps or analytics, especially analytics, and this is a huge area in cybersecurity, if you want to develop that the analytics skills, whether that's visualization, um, playing around with data, analyzing data, or just using the tools, um, you can get that for free from lynda.com and their high quality courses. And Calgary Public Library has access to that. Right? It does. And the public and your and Calgary of- Public Library card is free. And then you get freelynda.com. And, and for those who maybe who aren't in the CPL environment, a lot of universities have access to it for their faculty and students and, and staff. So anyone with, um, you know, now that's only good if you're in a university, but it helps if you're in a university that's not in Calgary, I guess. Um, not to trounce on everyone's, um, you need to be more diverse and know other things, but I wanted to talk about um, Hack the Box and Try Hack Me. Uh, Julia, how relevant are those to what you actually do in, in industry? They're fairly relevant. Hack the Box, especially. I haven't tried Try Hack Me yet. Try Hack Me is like the baby version. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, Hack the Box is a great resource. Uh, you actually get to play with a web app realistically. And you get to test your own skills against it. They have a great community. They help each other out. They don't give you, you know, the answers. Obviously, you don't look for the answers. That's just cheating. We don't do that. Um, but, yeah, that's a great resource. It's free. It's online. If you're in lockdown and quarantine, do this on your computer. Spend some time. Enjoy yourself. Uh, all right. Um Moving on to a question um, that a couple of people had, and I actually had myself, how common are junior level positions or internships in cybersecurity roles? Is it better to enter cybersecurity through like a more software development sysadmin way and try and make your way up that way? Or can you get directly into cybersecurity? Well, it depends where, Um, for example, Uh, Online does hire associate consultants. So those are people who are fresh out of college and they're interested in doing security, um, especially for roles like uh, QSA, um, roles like, yes, mostly actually like QSA, doing audits, doing PCI audits, doing um, security reviews, things like that, analysts. Um, You don't need to be, you know, in your 30s and 40s and 50s and already with like tens of years under your of whatever experience uh, it is an open market uh, just just apply even if you think that you're not um, qualified yet apply have you volunteered have you done hackathons have you done um, capture the flags have you done hack the box have you done anything else outside of your academic career if you have make a note of that in your cv like show what your skills are um 
it's not robots who are reading it. It's other people who were in your shoes at one point. So give it a go. Even if you don't think you're qualified, apply. Definitely. And, and on, on that too, it's, it's about, um, uh, you know, if you're looking specifically for a cybersecurity role, I mean, you will find those jobs like listed out there. Um, I think a core thing there too, is if you are out there just researching, um, uh, they, there's a, there's a couple places, uh, here too, is, is when you're looking at like, uh, consulting companies or MSPs or that type of thing, you know, like check them out. Um, if they have a security presence, you know, as a public facing thing, you may not start specifically in a security role, but they have, they most likely have a path to get into that side of the business. And that's where a lot of consulting companies start, you know, let's grow your skills, see where you go and, and move in um, to these other areas. And uh, then the other thing I would probably recommend too, and, and Alex is doing some of this right now as an intern, but there is a, um, a deficiency in, in, you know, on the, on the technical cybersecurity side with vendors, upstream. And that's something I hear from vendors that I would partner with all the time is, oh, we wish we had X amount more <laughs> tier whatever people and we're trying to grow into this side of our dev. And I'm like, hey, I'd love to come work for you, but I've got this thing happening over here. And it doesn't really make sense, but it's awesome to see that they also have a need. And, um, and while it, I know it's a growing pain in the industry, it's also extremely positive for me to see because it means that you know, those, you know, top, you know, pick your top five vendors out there that are specialized on the cybersecurity side. They all have similar challenges. They all are trying to bring to market similar types of products that fill similar types of holes. And they also have similar types of needs when it comes to the people that facilitate that, whether it be on a technical side, a technical sales side, development side. Um, I can guarantee that there's a, there's a place for you out there. <laughs> it's just about finding, you know, like what, you know, where you actually just want to go with that. So you have a, um, a comment from Andrew. Um, uh, many of us here know Andrew. Andrew's a manager, um, manages a cybersecurity team. And he's saying, pick an entry point and it doesn't matter what it is. And then understand the security implications in there. And then you're going to end up pivoting in. So it's basically anything in IT is a good um, starting point. But as long as you maintain focus, one of the things that I um, frequently tell students is you don't need permission to start working in cybersecurity. Quite often, um, people approach it like they would, say, accounting or engineering. It's like, oh, what what courses should I take? And then once I get those courses, oh, then I'll go and get my first career path job. If you're interested in working in cybersecurity, you can just start working now and doing projects now. Um, it is going to be a challenge to find that job. And, you know, as uh, if you've watched this live stream before, you know, my recent story that even with 25 years experience, it seemed almost impossible to find a job. It's not impossible. It's just that cybersecurity is a hiring problem. And there's no obvious solution yet. Yep. If you want to be in cybersecurity, start doing it now. Pick something that interests you that may not be the thing you end up doing. Maybe you like pen testing. Maybe you don't. Maybe you want to learn about defensive tools. Maybe you want a specific type of technology, firewalls, endpoint. Maybe you want to reverse malware. All of those lessons are out there. The only thing that's hard to learn is architecture. Um, there's not a lot out there for defensive architecture, but 
you can just start. Um, it's going to be your hobby before it's your career. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I, I don't know. I, I typically cruise LinkedIn. I look at job postings on a regular basis, not necessarily for myself, more for my friends that are looking to, I guess, transition or they're looking for a new career after they've, you know, they've been laid off. I would say more often than not, cybersecurity jobs tend to, like, as Michael said, uh, do a lot of unicorn hunting. Uh, they're looking for someone with a vast skill set specific to their needs. And I don't think, uh, and I could be wrong, but uh, I don't think in a lot of cases that new grads will necessarily be able to fit all those uh, um, requirements. That being said, uh, there are certain skills that, you know, any IT shop is always interested in looking at. Uh, DevOps is very big. So if you know scripting, uh, you know, if you know, like shell scripting, Unix shell scripting, or, you know, PowerShell scripting from Windows, that is massive. And really, that kind of does translate into security, you know, uh, really easily. So, I mean, you could start off doing those things. And then next thing you know, you're in cybersecurity, Uh, you know. Again, policy, right? If you're good at writing reports or doing analytics, uh, again, you know, if you're good at manipulating data, let's say you're a DBA, like you really have a, a strong, I guess, inclination for doing DB, DBA stuff. That's also another way to get in. Uh, I'm not sure if that was how Julia got in, but uh, I assume that, you know, she did do a little bit of uh, DBA work while she was doing uh, UX work for uh, websites and stuff of that matter. So, I would say that that's probably your best bet to get in. I'm not saying that you can't get in directly as a cybersecurity engineer or, you know, SOC analyst or something like that. Uh, but as Michael alluded to, uh, it really does need to be your hobby and your passion before it turns into your career. And if you're looking at, you know, just getting in, yeah, you know, taking a different tra- track and then just kind of, you know, working your way into the security team is not a bad path either. So we actually have a related question that it's it's good to throw in here now for Lisa. I'm going to try to bring this up. It was much earlier. Um, basically, um, what advice, Lisa, what advice would you give to a student who can't decide whether they want to stay in academia or get a degree and sort of ultimately should they research cybersecurity or graduate and get a job in the industry and then build a pro- professional career? You've never wrestled with that? Well, I haven't because I, you know, I got my undergrad degree and I went and worked. I never thought I'd be an academic. So I kind of came at it the backwards direction in some ways. But um, I think to some extent, it kind of depends on what do you want to do? So is it going to be a different answer if you're going to take a very technical cybersecurity approach? In which case, um, you know, one of the neat things, and, and this is also because I'm in a business environment, um, it's quite common for business academics to have worked in the real world for a long time before even coming back to do their PhD. Uh, so it's really common for that. But if you're in engineering or computer science, it's actually far more common for you to just to just go straight through and you never actually work um, outside of academia. You just you sort of follow that entire pathway um, through. And and, and even like to get your PhD, but then go back out into industry and work in industry um, happens a lot too in engineering and um, computer science more so than it does in say a business environment. We sort of flip that pathway. I There's value in having the time in industry to figure out what you want to do. 
But if you know that you ultimately want to end up in academia, there can be sort of very specific roles where you're doing maybe fellowships. So some of the policy stuff you can do is you can end up working in like a you know, do your, do maybe your master's or be working on your master's and be working with a think tank or be working with a policy institute or get a fellowship in a policy institute. So you are having some exposure in very real world activities, but you're still sort of building up what you need to be um, sitting in the academic space too. So you're working on your research skills at the same time that you're working on your, um, um, you know, exposure and, and knowing what real world business problems are. So you can kind of keep your feet in both places. I'm not as good at being able to tell you, well, if I want to be a computer scientist and I want to be a, a CS professor or I want to be in engineering and I want to be in those really core technical roles, uh, is it better to stop at your undergrad, go work and come back? I really can't answer that. I think the tradition is that you just go straight through and be an academic. But that said, you know, to heck with tradition. Who cares? Um, you can make your own pathway. If you like academia, but you want to have a professional career, just make friends with a professor you really like, and then you can occasionally teach and give guest lectures and um, get them not on saying the live that... stream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do those things. That's right. <laughs> I think from a student perspective, um, Alex, I'm sure that you can attest to this as well, but uh, but we can always tell when professors have. Um, a varied and diverse background and have worked in industry. And uh, it always shines through in the way that they approach those problems. And it's really refreshing to see that compared to professors who have only ever been in academia. So, yeah, I, so I understand that. Do you guys ever feel like you don't belong in the roles that you're in? Um, like imposter syndrome type <laughs> oh definitely so, yes i don't belong um, on this podcast <laughs> so so back in november um uh i went and taught a course on threat hunting um to a group that i was teaching um incident response training every year and i had never felt more intimidated because these people take a lot of training and um they're really great and um i decided just to about an hour in just to say, you know what? Uh, I'm going to talk about imposter syndrome. It literally turned into a two hour discussion with everyone in the room talking about how intimidated they were um, by instructors, uh, me, um, but also each other. Um, it's, I think it's epidemic levels. Um, and I think it's because um, like in, you know, we are talking about the unicorn hunt in job descriptions. And some of the comments are talking about how these job descriptions that get written and just sort of got this endless list of unrelated certifications and qualifications. Um, and then you go and you do your job and you, because of the sense of urgency, you always feel unprepared. You always have a thing you don't know. You're always dealing with someone else who's an expert in their area and you could never catch up. Of course, I feel like we're going to feel like imposters all the time. Um, uh, more when I did an entire live stream on this, but emotional awareness is one of the things you need to develop or it's going to kill you. Um, and I, we actually have, I know some people that are watching the stream that um, it's a big deal in their cybersecurity job that they it's constantly feeling stressed because of that. A hundred percent. 
as a female in the cybersecurity field, the technical part of a cybersecurity field. The imposter syndrome is insane. Why am I here? Why am I on this podcast? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> but it is real and it is lying to you. Your imposter syndrome is a big fat liar and you need to tell it to shush. That is the best advice I can give to young people and young women specifically. Your imposter syndrome is making you small, but you are not small. You have so much experience. You have so many things behind you that you've learned. If you have anything in your head, if you have any sort of knowledge, if you can teach that, you're not an imposter. Each and every one of us here has something to teach each other. Each and every one of you who are watching this right now have something to teach. You can be mentors. You belong in this space. You want to be here? You're welcome to be here. I I wish I had um, done this with the camera. <laughs> and then I could have taken that video and just made it the trailer for this channel. Uh. <laughs> that, was a, it was, that was a mic drop moment. <laughs> That was I'm good. sure you can edit good. it later. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, too. Um, I, I've always, oh, go ahead, Lisa. I was going to say, I've also always found that the more I learn about something, the more I realize I don't know. And so that actually makes my imposter syndrome harder. And I've you know, like I've worked with people who are more junior to me, and then you ask them how they know, and like, I know everything. I'm an expert in this. I mean, like, like, I have 10 more years experience, and I'm not market expert. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, so there's, there's a little bit of, understanding that yeah the more you know the more you see and the more you understand that you don't know everything and figuring out how to say well that's okay because I still know a lot right I still know an awful lot um but I still have to tell myself that I still have to remind myself that actually I have some skills I'm I'm good at this I do belong here kind of wrote a book on Linux firewalls before it was even a thing (laughs) um I yeah but it's like you know I I I never get bored of bragging about you, Lisa. I was going to say that that's what you do. You yeah, leave actually, it to your you leave it to your friends to brag for you. You be humble and then you rely on others in your group to, you know, really, you know, put put you in your place. It's like, no, she's she's better than she admits. <laughs> yeah, no, that's absolutely a strategy like knowing which people are your strongest champions exactly. and knowing to go talk to them exactly. when you are feeling down and let them tell you um, I have, you know, Michael's one of these people. I have a few other people in my um, um, life and in my, my environment that, you know, when I'm feeling down, I go talk to them. I say, listen, I can't make this work. I send them this and they write back, oh my God, that's the best figure I've ever written. And I'm like, oh, okay, thanks. It looks like crap to me, but okay. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, it's something I try and do as well. I, I try and stay humble. Uh, I mean, earlier in my life, I was, I was a lot more cockier. Uh, but you know, in this day and age, I even put it in my presentations when I'm doing uh, public public presentations. I actually have an image of Socrates, wait, camera Socrates usually on the side, and I start with the uh, comment of uh, what Socrates taught, right? And that's uh, you know the only thing I know is that I know nothing, so I'm essentially a student for life, and that's the attitude I take. It doesn't mean that you know I don't know stuff. I do. But I like to think of myself as I'm always learning. Uh, you know, if someone corrects me, I'm okay with that. It's not going to hurt my ego. 
it just means I learned something that, you know, I can possibly, po- you know, pass on to someone else. So, and then uh, again, you know, having friends that kind of, you know, keep you grounded are, are pretty important. Like Michael, Michael does that really well. Uh, you know, we talk about other people a lot and, uh, we realize, yeah, you know what, sometimes, uh, you know, that person can be a little bit more humble or, you know, we, we bounce, you know, ideas off each other. And, you know, Michael's probably one of the most humblest people you'll meet. Uh, and, uh, he, you are dude, you don't, you don't admit it, but you are, uh, again, you know, it starts with that whole, you know, telling people the biases, right. It's like, well, this is what I think. Maybe I'm wrong about it. But then you know he'll give his explanation. But at the same time, he has that uh, he has that skill set to rise up, rise up. You know when someone asks him a question, it's like, well, I don't know, but I'm going to go research it and I'll see if I can kind of explain it to you uh, in my own words. And that's uh, that's an important skill to have. So, okay, so we have a question from Andrew, which is, did we cover biggest mistake? Andrew, what do you mean the biggest mistake you could make in your career? <laughs> or um because i'm intrigued <laughs> well while we're waiting for him uh, maybe we should move on to the next uh next topic that alex and emily would like to cover yeah yeah this is yeah so before we open it up to everyone to ask questions but i'm really interested in what you guys think is the future of cybersecurity. i know it's a brand new field and it's changing all the time but what do you think is going to be the up and coming skills that you need to know? Where do you think the industry is going to be in five years? And what do you think are going to be the major disruptors as well? I could tell you right now, DevOps. If you're not doing any sort of DevOps, you're losing out in a big way. And then AI, but AI kind of goes hand in hand with uh, DevOps. But that's my opinion. When you say DevOps, what do you mean by that? Uh, any kind of automation and orchestration, that's very big because, uh, again, the biggest problem is that there's a shortage and the sheer number of attacks that you have to defend is just not feasible manually. You could hire, you know, a thousand monkeys and train them in cybersecurity to protect one organization and it still wouldn't be enough. Uh, which means that, again, with the rise of AI and, I mean, machine learning, I'm going to say machine learning because I, I think that's more appropriate uh and analytics let's let's just face it just the sheer amount of data that you collect in a given hour is more than you know any DevOps or any secure ops team can handle so you have to rely on automation techniques technologies uh leverage machine learning feed it into some sort of uh, automation tool i mean we talk about soar all the time right security ops uh, automation uh and remediation and that's big uh, so that's why when I said, you know, if you really want to get into cybersecurity and be valuable right out of the gate, I think today, if you have any level of scripting skills, like in, you know, terms of Unix scripting or, uh, sorry, Unix uh, shell scripting or, uh, you know, JSON or whatever, uh, JavaScript, it's going to be pretty crucial. So that's just my opinion. Everyone else can refute it. And uh, that's cool. <laughs> I have been known to be wrong. So. <laughs> <laughs> Jared, it's been a while since we've heard from you. What do you think? Ah, okay, uh, so I agree with Moro. I mean, uh, there's a lot. It's only okay that that can be a topic onto itself. Actually, to be perfectly honest with you, because what Moro might think of DevOps is is something completely different than than I might come up with on the DevOps side as well. But at the core of it, though, the if you can automate it, if you can find a way that you can consistently do that thing. 
that's a real like skill leading EL leader that you can actually emphasize you know, within a team. And you don't need to be a senior person on a team to be able to utilize that. It's always the little things that actually help, you know, like move things along for your team or for your practice or whatever you're doing in your lab. Um, perfect that. Uh, so that's that's one thing. Um, and we're seeing this not just on the cybersecurity side, but also on the application side. There's way more of that baseline requirement for, you know, whether it be, um, you know, like uh, shell access or shell scripting. Um, PowerShell uh, is now, you know, across multiple platforms now and becoming more of a, a universal method of, you know, of communicating, um, you know, at that level. Um, and that's, the, you know, and that's a core, you know, a core feature set you know that of, of you that you could push forward especially if you can specialize in one area or another and we see that um with people that are are very proficient they start off maybe uh, like you know on the application side with like um microsoft like office 365 and then that sort of translates into more you know automating things in azure and then that might also then start to encompass more things on the system inside on for security automation and you know and, and it's like this never-ending experience that you can really grow so devops is definitely big um the other side though too is is uh is the thing that doesn't change underneath all this is the people so um it's just that where the people interacting is starting to shift and we you know and and you see it from you know back when um you know back in the day we were more concerned about the person in front of the endpoint at the desk in the place and so our view of let's say securing that space you had a lot more physical requirements because you had to protect the stuff physically and then you had this other layer on top of it now you don't have that physical layer a lot of times anymore so now that person could be anywhere so that zero trust cap you know capability um and, and methodology to you know how do you secure the data how do you secure the person how do you secure the company um and then leading to what policies drive all that so that's kind of where i see the the future if you can take anything out of any of that and just sort of slam it all together into one cohesive thought that's kind of where i constantly see things shifting right now. Lisa, I'd love to hear you expand on the uh, on the autonomous systems as well that you were talking about in the chat. Yeah, so I I'm sort of thinking of this in terms of we are autonomous vehicles are coming, right? We are already doing that and we're having to use machine learning to be able to recognize people. Um, and we have some real problems with those algorithms not working. We have some real problems where we use um, algorithms to um, make decisions about, you know, well, sentencing in in um, judicial cases and stuff. So there's a whole bunch of issues there, and we have all this data. So we kind of morphed off of this idea of the data and looking at we're collecting more data. We have autonomous systems that we're building. We have vehicles that we're building. I'm in uh, at a university that does a lot of um, agriculture tech, ag tech. And so there's a lot of sensor networks going into our agriculture systems and um because I'm in California, it's largely watering, right? Like how do we provide water? But as we build out these sort of core infrastructures and we connect them to the to the internet, because these are all going to be internet things um, for many good reasons, we are doing it with people who are not technology people typically. Um, you know, agriculture is, you know, a different skill set than most computer people. And now we have all of this technology going out into it. That is a wonderful attack surface. If I am a nation state and I want to disrupt something, I can disrupt your economy by I can, you know, kill California's economy if I can disrupt their crops. 
um, I can harm the people because now we don't have the food. So we, we disrupt food systems across the way. So I think we have some real risks there. And I think there needs to be a lot more thinking about how is cybersecurity done and managed in these operational systems areas and not just, you know, I want to go work for Facebook and Google and whatnot because they provide the information and the communication technologies aspects, but all the operational stuff, all the how do we have autonomous vehicles that are safe for us to drive and not just taken over. So um, this is kind of the space I'm in. And this is because I see the research that's happening around us. And I know that this is going to be a thing, right? We'll adopt it long before we're ready from a cybersecurity perspective. And Julia, are you unmuted? <laughs> I did unmute. Um, that is something really fascinating to think about, Lisa. Holy crow. I'm going to have to look further into that. Um, so I was going to say that this ties into social engineering, which is a term that we haven't really spoken yet in this podcast. Um, social engineering, I think, is going to keep getting bigger and bigger. Because first we had fishing, now we have vishing, et cetera, et cetera. We're building on that. We're building on how to manipulate people into giving us their credentials, their data, the data for their companies. Let's say somebody is no longer working in an office. They're working from a coffee shop because they work remotely. Well, what if somebody's looking over their shoulder? Are there things that we can implement to prevent that person from actually being able to see what is on their screen. And yes, we can, there's those screen things. Um, but I think social engineering is going to get to be more of a broad and all encompassing thing that we as security professionals have to look at and care about. Okay. So uh, I don't know, Michael, uh, I think I can scroll up and uh, go to our uh, first questions. Uh, sorry, Alex, Emily, is that it for, uh, I guess, the uh, the questions you guys have planned? I, I want to answer their question. Okay, <laughs> okay Michael, here's your soapbox. I, yeah, I have a soapbox to pull out. The next big thing for cybersecurity um, is business intelligence. So... I could say the next big thing is cyber threat intelligence, but that's actually the, the big thing now. The thing is cyber threat intelligence is about applying traditional intelligence methods. It come from the military and other places um, and trying to analyze cyber threats and then make good decisions and actionable rec recommendations. It's a whole new area and it's exciting. But to follow what Andrew said earlier, what we do is really about the business and these um, militarized models of intelligence don't represent business value. They do represent um, something worth doing and something that's very important right now. But when you apply these processes where you take lots of data, we've talked about analytics being important and you analyze it and you create a whole pool of information that's got a little bit more context. And then you analyze that to make actionable recommendations, situational awareness, and insights that answer information requests that come from the leaders. What is of strategic importance to the business? That's a thing that already exists called business intelligence. And the thing we haven't realized is that in cybersecurity, we're sitting on mountains of data and we're starting to get good at analyzing it and answering questions. And that's 
going to just be another pool of data and another specialty that helps business leaders make strategic choices. Now, they might not think of them as cybersecurity decisions, but the data is collected for cybersecurity purposes, for threat detection purposes, for defense purposes, but it will be applied to a much broader area. When that happens, cybersecurity is going to have a bona fide seat at the table um, and not just be a part of IT that's there to deal with an intense threat. It will actually be there to provide some strategic value. That's going to be the next big thing. Actually, Michael, and and just with that, I mean, you know, if, even from our own company. Um, so, like, where I fit into the organization, I actually fall underneath our business intelligence division. That's exactly where I sit, and um, so I augment our our virtual, um, uh, you know, uh, CIO practice. And it's, you know, so from a from a, um, a strategy perspective on the consulting side, we have those people that are doing that specialty already from a business leadership and where do you want to go with technology and, and, you know, helping make those decisions. And now I'm augmenting that from a, you know, security perspective. It's kind of like, now you have all this data. Now you have all these new tech pieces with technology that may change. Maybe it's taking technology out. Maybe it's putting it in, you know, and then now bringing that security aspect to that entire discussion. So it it's future, but it is starting to happen now. <laughs> which is nice. So I think we're ready to move on to our first, or go back to our first question. Okay, um, so um, I was scrolling through, and I think this was the first one from uh, actually our friend Kyle. <laughs> is the stress level higher in a consulting time-driven delivery higher than in a security operations role? Is it, uh, is it a different kind of stress? Hmm. Uh, I mean, I have my opinions on this because I've been a consultant. So, and um, I, I'm going to tend to say yes myself. Uh, usually, when when I'm in a consulting role, I've been hired to do a specific task uh, with a specific deadline. So, whereas in security operations, usually the, the pressure comes from just you know having to do the day to day and you know writing reports and that of that matter. But um, that's just my personal experience. Um, I guess Jared, you, you probably have a better idea on uh, on this question. Uh, yeah, actually, my general answer is yes. It it, it actually is an even um, answer for me from a stress perspective. Um, you know, um, both have their challenges. Um, you know, like yeah, you have deliverables on the one side, but when you are also worrying about operational. Uh, attacks and and you know having to response you know respond in real time with a team, you know it's different types of stress, but they do sort of play out, especially when you're you, when you do have groups of people going down both paths at the same time. So if I was dedicated to one, that would be actually better for me. <laughs> but but right now I would say yeah, it's it's probably even for me. Okay. Uh, I, I'll, I'm going to chime in on this because um, I think as a consultant, you do a lot more context switching. What that means is you've got to do something that's an entirely knowledge, different knowledge domain and you have to sort of stop doing one thing. So, oh, I'm writing scripts. Oh, no, now I'm writing report. Oh, now I'm advising someone. Oh, now I'm planning something. Now I'm writing a contract. Um, 
that's really, really stressful, that context switching. It requires intense focus. Whereas in a security operations role, what you have is the sense of urgency from constant new things coming in and having to ask yourself, um, should I pay attention to this? Should I work on this right now? Or should I switch to this other thing that I have to work on? But the knowledge domain, you don't switch as often. Business context plays a lot with that as far as what is going to impact the business as a priority. You know, sometimes it's moment by moment. Uh, but yeah, like through the day, it's, it's okay, word, you know, what strategically does makes more sense to actually focus on, you know, at times. Okay, I guess uh, uh, Julia or Lisa, if you guys, uh, if you have any comments or. Yeah, for sure. Um, having been in both, having been a, a non-contractor and having been a contractor, um, as a consultant, you definitely have a lot more stress on your shoulders because every single minute you are responsible for. All of your minutes in your day have to be billed to a project that you're working on. Otherwise, either yourself or your agency is not writing a paycheck at the end of the day. So there is that big stress, right? It's delivering, it's delivering a lot. Um, context switching is huge. So Michael, yes, <laughs> I agree with that, that the context switching is going to be big. You have to be a consultant dealing with clients in a non-technical speak one moment. And then the next moment you're on a call mm -hmm. with your team and you're discussing what's going on in your lab and how you can fix it. And then you're thinking about how you're going to make up those hours later, right? So it's, it's a very different world than being hired at a company where you do your work. And sometimes, yeah, you have your night shifts because, you know, for a security operation role, you're definitely going to have that. You're definitely going to have to be monitoring threats at night, et cetera. But it's not as common. Um, I personally find it to be a lot less stressful than consulting. Okay. Um, Lisa, uh, any comments or you're good? Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, I think we've seen that question. That was a question directed at Lisa about academia. Oh, our friend Ryan put this question up. Are there any courses, sites, or resources free or paid that you would recommend for learning good practices for report writing? Um, I think we kind of covered or we touched, touched on it a bit. Um, I'm not sure if lynda.com has any, uh, good resources for covering that. I, I don't think I've seen it myself, uh, although I haven't really scoured too much. Um, I know of a book, um, okay. published by a guy in Edmonton and he has these two little pamphlet books. I'm going to have to dig them up, but it was, um, quite fundamental to me, um, improving my business writing. It was recommended to me to buy, um, a cognitive science professor when I was finishing my undergrad. And it's a very short book, um, but it basically focuses on a process as opposed to, you don't need knowledge of how to write. You need to follow a process. And the more you do the process, the more your writing will improve. Um, <laughs> let me see if I can dig that up and put it in the show notes. Okay. Uh, and, and, and I think uh, Lisa made a comment, right? If you're at a university taking courses, uh, you know, they kind of help provide some of that for you. So sorry, Alex, I think I interrupted you. Oh, I was just all of the people who come from <laughs> a little more diverse backgrounds or writing backgrounds all nodded on the process. Uh, Once you uh, figure okay. out 
and like demystify what makes good writing it's so like clear cut and simple but it's so hard to get to that point where it's like oh this is good writing and this is the difference and this is how you get there (laughs) (laughs) this the same guy has two books one on how to write uh proposals and then another one on how to write reports and uh it's a lot of overlapping advice and it all starts with what he calls free writing which is all right, so just stop stop thinking about it, stop censoring and judging yourself and just start writing and write and write and write until you can't write anymore. Because you know what? Editing is so much easier. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, yeah. and, and, that, and that's where Lisa had commented, right? I mean, you know, you can find templates on the web to kind of help you with some of that stuff, right? Depending on what you're trying to write. But um, again, you know, good, good for, you know, the people that are starting off or, you know, uh, transitioning inside their career to, into something else, right? So... I'm just scrolling through some of the other uh, questions yeah. and comments. I think the hardest part of writing is the the blinking cursor on the blank page. <laughs> you know, one of the things I had to learn to do is I just start midway. Like if I, you know, because it's those first words, how do I start it? I just like, I just literally start in the middle of a sentence and start writing because I know that there's something I want to say. And at some point in time, I can come back and figure out what the starting of my sentence is. Right. Yeah, that gets away from the blinking cursor problem. <laughs> you, you know what? I have a um, an odd piece of advice, but I stand by it. Um, if you want to learn how to write well for business, read The Economist. Um, yeah. the, the Economist is a weekly magazine with some really great writing, and it's concise and clear writing. Um, literally, when I find myself at a loss... It is hard to read because they're longer format, but that will help you structure your thoughts. And the more, the more I read, the more I can write better. So the economist. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Uh, okay. I think uh, here's a good question from Jeremy. Uh, incre- he increasingly consumes news analysts from podcasts. Are there any uh, there you recommend for learning or staying current with cybersecurity news? Uh, I think, I think you replied to this, right, Michael? Um, can't remember. I think we have a list up on our, uh, on our website. But yeah. Um, so I'm going to add to the show notes, this list we've, we put up a couple times, but it goes like this. Um, anything from the cyber wire uh, on a daily and a weekly basis, um, re uh, listen to um, darknet diaries to hear firsthand accounts from cyber criminals. Um, don't buy into the, I'm a nice guy who's misunderstood. Make up your own judgments about who these characters are. Um, it's both good and bad. It's nuanced, but great stories. Um, then there is malicious life podcast. Oh, wow. Great documentary style reporting of the history of cybersecurity and malware. Um, oh, and ours, Moro and Mike, that's which right. is on that, iTunes, that's Spotify. Right. And, uh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, not necessarily a podcast, but yeah, for me, Bleeping Computer. I, I tend to read that a lot. I mean, aside from just my new, you know, my Google News feed. So, um, but anyways, Michael will definitely post that for you uh, after, after we're done this uh, live stream. Uh, not a question, but this was kind of interesting when we were talking about, you know, I guess the future of cybersecurity deep fakes. Uh, that's, that's certainly, uh, that's certainly a big in- interest area. I'm not sure how, uh, one's career would actually intermingle with that per se, but, um, 
it it is an interesting in, interesting thing that is or phenomenon that's that's been happening for the last last year or two years or so. I know Michael was uh, experimenting with it, and uh, he was telling me how simple it is actually to do deep fakes. I think he said it was what thirty separate different pictures or something like that, and you can pretty much string along a, a deep fake fairly easily. Yeah, if you got like a minute worth of video of someone's face, that's yeah. enough individual frames. You a video card that's suitable for gaming, even an old one, old, old video card in 24 hours of compute time. And you can make a reasonable short deep fake of somebody. And now there's um, algorithms out there that um, you basically take a sample of someone's voice and then you can make them say anything they want to the point that um, liar bird, who was the most popular of that when they got bought out, they said, no, no, no more of this. We don't (laughs) allow you to use anyone's voice but your own and they only sell it to basically podcasters so that if you want to edit your podcast after you recorded it you can type the words you want and it'll just replace it with voice that sounds like yours yeah yeah okay so jeremy with a question to what degree do you deal with or are impacted by standards regulation laws from either standards associations or governments are you seeing more or less of these do they help or hinder um, <laughs> I think, you know, at least this is my answer. So in the past, I would say that this was pretty, pretty limited. I would say as we're rolling along, I mean, especially when you see things like GDPR, I know, I mean, Canada's got several laws on basically, you know, reporting breaches that I, I don't know. I don't see it in the news very often. I don't even see it being enforced uh, or at least in the news, from the news, uh, it being enforced. And I know there are organizations that have certainly been breached, and I have to question whether or not they've reported it. So I think this is a very touchy subject in the sense that, yeah, there's still the stigma of, you know, saving face, I guess, versus, okay, you know, admitting that you've been breached and then working towards a resolution and also contributing to the... um, I guess the information out there about, you know, what the breach was, how it happened and what that organization has done to remediate it. So, yeah, I, I would like to hope that these laws help uh, rather than hinder. I, I certainly do think they help in, in a lot of contexts, but uh, that being said, <laughs> uh, enforcement, I guess, is, is probably a bigger, bigger issue when it comes to, to this topic, at least from my point of view. Um, Andrew says hinder, definitely <laughs> hinder, because people are still pushing old advice, not current yeah. advice. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I've I've worked in a bunch of different had clients of all different types of regulations, and um, uh, in some cases, I think the regulatory framework drives us to um, be better. In some cases, it results in checkboxing. Mm-hmm. Um, not to derail, but how would you better, how do you think you could better create regulations or some kind of policy or standards that would allow businesses to actually follow it, like encourage them to actually follow it? Do you think there's a better way? Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure it's out there. I just, I, I don't even know re- really off the top of my head. Um, Lisa's the policy person. Yeah, yeah that's that's a, yeah. Well, and this, this, a whole range of emotions right there. So. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's um, 
I think there, there's sort of a few things that you have to unpack, right? There's there's the, the regulations, the policy, there's then the advice and the standards that come down to how do I, what do I actually have to do to be in compliance? And that's where you get your checklist potential, right? Where I'm like, I check all the boxes and so I'm compliant, but there's no, you know, like how exactly do you confirm that? What do you do with it? Um, and there's also some of this problem in a lot of cases, the policymakers are so far behind where the technology is, right? It takes so long to first identify there's a problem and then figure out and fight through um, any legislative process to make this. So there's a lot of sort of challenges around this, but we are seeing like, instead of from the public side, we do need some attempt at policy and regulation, right? We're seeing GDPR come in. California's got its equivalent now, CalPRS or something like that. I don't remember what it stands for. Um, where there's this attempt to think about the public's right to privacy and, and how we deal with that data. Because, you know, I can't go up to Google and say, I don't want you to keep my data, right? Like Google be like, yeah, whatever, so don't use my service. And you're like, well, I can't not use a service because I have <laughs> other things. And so there's the only way for us to sort of collectively push back against that is to figure out these policies and they're going to be flawed. Um, I think where companies run into trouble is they don't get good direction on what do I actually have to do to do this? And everyone's interpreting it. And I've been, you know, sitting through for the last year and a half, what does our campus have to do to deal with GDPR, right? What, how does that affect various different people? What do I as a professor need to suddenly worry about, um, you know, where I keep my student marks? And to what extent is IT actually able to tell that I am, carefully not keeping my student IDs and their marks on Dropbox or wherever, right? Because that's technically not allowed. It's not a university um, resource or supplied resource. So yeah, it's, they're nice guidelines. They can help when you're just getting started, but you know, they're not perfect. Okay. I expect they can complicate more lives. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think we're going to finish this off with this one last question because I think we're we're hitting that two-hour mark very shortly here. <laughs> Any tips for enhancing time management, reducing those context switches? Use the yes. Pomodoro. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, actually, that's a great answer. Pomodoro is the easiest thing you can do um, immediately. You don't need to be trained. Um I was going to say um, Time Management for Sysadmins by Thomas Limoncelli. It's short. Um, it borrows from the best other um, systems. Um, and it's written from the perspective of IT people. So Time Management for Sysadmins by Limoncelli. Okay, cool. And uh, I'm assuming that Michael will also put, you know, uh, either a link in our uh, chat or... Yeah, it'll be in the show notes tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. And uh, again, you know, we have a Discord as well, a Discord chat for those of you that want, would like to join. We typically, uh, I know Michael and a group of our friends, we usually join on Fridays and we just chat about random things, usually having to do with IT, cybersecurity in that, that sense. So... Uh, I guess with that, uh, Michael, I'm not sure how you'd like to wrap this up. Uh, I, I think I would like to start off by just thanking our panelists and our guest uh, guest hosters, Alex and Emily. That was, uh, that was a great job you guys did. Great questions. So, um, yeah, hope, uh, we'll hope to kind of keep this rolling and maybe do it on a, on a regular or a semi-regular basis, depending on your schedules. So we uh, look forward to the next one of these. We are very much interested in your feedback about this. Um, 
this was our, our, our proof of concept, our trial run of trying to turn this platform over to student leaders. And there's a lot of them in this province and we'd really like to get broader involvement. We'd like to repeat this in the future. We're going to try to, uh, Alex and Emily in their InfoSec club are trying to organize a speaker series and uh, we're going to try to facilitate um, the speakers that they want to hear from. Um, Maybe that's you. Um, I want to bring up this. Uh, So, um, we launched a website a week ago, uh, cyberlibrarian.ca. And when you go there, there's a Mike and Morrow page and it's got a list of our upcoming topics and speakers. Um, we're interested in your feedback about which topics you want to see covered. And if you've got an idea for someone you want to see as a guest, let us know. We've actually got a whole bunch of ideas to fill in these to be determined and put out a lot of invites, but we're interested in being introduced to other people. Um, and um, I think Moro's actually got a list of topics that goes into about this time next year. Yes. But um, yes. prioritizing them and organizing them. Exactly. Um, um, <laughs> you know, it's flexible. So that's right. We go with the flow. We're not, we're not rigid, you know. And uh, finally, this will be the last note I end on is that. So uh, our live stream next week is on threat intelligence. Uh, We'll have uh, analysts uh, Alec Mather Shapiro and Chris McNeil back to talk about all of the exciting cybersecurity news that happened in July, which will wrap up next week's session with a discussion of the Twitter hack and its many, many nuances. Um, It is not the simplest topic in the world because it's not just about the hack that occurred. It's about how people perceived it and how they analyzed it in real time and jumped to conclusions. And then the week after that, um, I can't remember. We have an even more exciting topic. Um, I think we're doing one on mentorship or rejection. Uh, I think we're doing rejection. Then the mentorship will be the week after. But regardless, both topics are great. So please tune in. All right. So with that, thank you everyone for joining us. And I will play the outro music.